All right, garbage listeners, I am Brandon Mercer. I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, June 30th, 2016, and this is episode 32 of Garbage. Awesome. Hey, I got uh, garbage stickers and t-shirts in the mail today. Oh, really? Yeah, I really like those stickers. Transparent uh, sticker with the, you know, what is it, black and gray lettering. It looks really great. Cool. Yeah, it went right on the back of my uh, my new Chromebook and looks really really good on there. It's really it stands out from the others. It's quite distinguished. <laughs> uh, I saw you had the white blowfish on there. Yeah, there is a black one. Just so you know. Yeah, I saw that too. Well, the reason I got the white is because I have the X220, so oh, yeah. it was all black, and I was like, oh, that'll look cool on there. Yeah. And now that I have a silver Chromebook, I need to get some of the uh, the black ones. They look really nice. Um, all right. So I had a few random things to talk about. We had some listener questions and feedback. What did you want to start with? Um, yeah, let's start with the listener requests. Um, some people sent in feedback and other people had questions. So yeah, let's start with that stuff. All right. So we had a, uh, somebody that wrote in just identified himself as Decker asking what uh, language or framework we would recommend for a uh, new uh, web developer. He was asking whether it should be Go or Ruby or Java or Python or Rust or C. (laughs) I would not recommend C, especially if you are a beginner and probably even if you are an intermediate to advanced uh, C programmer, I would not recommend writing web apps in C. Yeah, no, C can be dangerous for web stuff. Uh, Ruby is pretty good. It's pretty common. Uh, Go seems to be pretty common these days. Uh, I would say, I guess it depends what else you want to do with the language. Like if you're planning on writing any system stuff later, maybe go for Go. And if you're just going to do web app stuff, maybe do Ruby. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I like the idea of Ruby quite a bit, especially for someone new to programming and new to web development. Um, There's a really good support community. There's a lot of really well-built libraries. Um, You have good tools in Go as well, but um, the people using those and supporting those and building stuff in those are generally a bit more seasoned. Um, they're trying to solve a little bit different problem scope than just writing a web app. Um, so if you're just starting out, I think Ruby is probably the better place to go. (laughs) Was that a pun? (laughs) (laughs) Man, the stuff I write, it's just, um, yeah, I, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, which I will get into later maybe is, uh, debugging a Ruby memory leak. Mm -hmm. So maybe that will turn this person off of, uh, using Ruby. uh, (laughs) I guess we'll see later. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, just try out a few of them, maybe see which one sticks to you and which one, I don't know, matches your memory model of how you think about stuff. Maybe. Yeah. I think, um, Python is also a good alternative. I'm happy to see you didn't say .NET, ASP, C sharp, uh, those types of things. I don't, and I'm not, uh, picking on those tools. People build a lot of apps in those, but I don't think those are good for beginners. I don't think those are good tools to be uh, starting out your web development career on. Um, many people do start out their web web development career on, and it really inhibits their ability to use other web tools later on. It's more like, um, you know, learning Cisco uh, networking versus learning networking and then applying it in PF or IP tables or Cisco or Juniper or whatever. Um, when you learn how to implement something in like a web application in .NET or C Sharp or whatever, you limit yourself in your understanding of the tools and, and uh, what you need to be doing with them. So Yeah. So I guess that's all uh, we have for that. Uh, did you want to uh, – you had a uh, feedback about your email stuff? Yeah, I thought this was pretty cool. Um, on last week's episode, I was talking about using Mutt, and Mutt is a really great email client, and I was just comparing it to Inbox, and I 
made a tongue-in-cheek comment about how much better it was, and, and someone wrote in, and they said, um, hey, I wanted to give you a couple things to talk about with, uh, you know, you're talking about using Mutt, and there's a few things here that they say, um, this is Hermino, thanks Hermino, um, he comments on using Gmail, if you have Gmail, there's a, um, a tool called GooBook, and it basically gives you access to your Gmail contacts from within Mutt, which I think is pretty cool. So if you're going to compose an email message and you want to access your um, Google contacts, um, you can pull them up right inside there and compose an email to them. And I think that's pretty nice because all of my contacts, sadly, are in Google right now. And um, I would like to have access to them inside of um, Mutt. So that's a cool tool. Mm-hmm. I say all. I mean, OpenBSD developers are not. Um, he also talks about a tool called URL View. Um, basically allows you to open links um, that are in your email, um, pop them open in your browser. Um, I don't really... I mean, I'm not, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I've never used the thing, but usually what I do is I just highlight the email the URL and the email and plop it in my browser. Um, and then there's another thing. He talks about using Mutt Patched. And I've heard about this sidebar. Um, and basically the idea here is inside Mutt you have a bunch of messages listed on the main screen. And um, if you want to navigate to your other folders, your sent items, deleted items, or whatever, you type C and then it says what folder do you want to go to. And apparently there's a sidebar that lists your email folders down the left-hand side or whatever and lets you navigate between them like that. Now, I don't navigate between my folders too often, and when I do, um, it's usually just once in a while to see what I sent to someone else. Um, But I've heard controversial things about this particular sidebar. Um, I know that it works, and I know that a lot of people use it, and I know that a lot of people like that style. Um, but I've also heard that the sidebar code is very scary and makes, um, people I trust and respect very much, uh, it makes them cringe. So anyway, um, couple tweaks to Mutt and, um, some advice from Hermino. So thank you for taking the time to write in. I am excited to look at, um, the goo, what is it? Goo book. So I can reference my Gmail contacts because I'm actually connecting Mutt to my uh, Google account to pull mail and stuff. So thank you for that. Yeah, I use the uh, sidebar patch. I have long used it. Um, it's annoying that it hasn't been upstreamed. Mm-hmm. And so every time there's a new Mutt release, this patch, along with a dozen other patches that people maintain, have to be uh, reapplied and slightly modified. Um, but I'm... I mean, there must be some specific reason why it hasn't been upstreamed. Yeah, um, that's what I've heard, yeah. But, like, if you... Because uh, I use it with uh, in Mutt with uh, I, a bunch of IMAP folders. That's how I do all of my email. Mm-hmm. And so I have, like, every mailing list that I'm subscribed to go to a different folder. And so, like, in the morning when I um, come back to my machine, Mutt shows, you know, how many new messages are in each folder and pretty much all of them have new mail so it's i like the sidebar patch just because it's easy to quickly see um like which folders have new mail and so i can skip because if you just hit like i have n bound to like just go to the next folder with new mail Mm -hmm. um but they're in like alphabetical order so sometimes i want to just jump around and go to something else that has new mail and um yeah, so I like the sidebar patch. I wish it were better code so that it could be properly upstreamed, but whatever. I'm wondering, do we have that in our port? Like, is it a flavor in our ports, or is it something you have to do by hand? It is a flavor in the port. It's, nice. Uh, the sidebar port or uh, flavor. And uh, as far as the links in email, um, I have Mutt automatically pipe HTML emails to links, the uh-huh. L-Y-N-X where it dumps the HTML and then it dumps the like a list of all the links at the end. Cause sometimes when you get an HTML email, like especially um, a lot of the like 
not so much spammy, but like they're like newsletters and stuff, and they have like a like a ton of links in them. It's hard to um, like the URL is not in the email body. It's just like a word that's linked, so you don't see the URL URL unless you're like actually looking at the HTML. So the way that links dumps them all out at the end, it's easy just to like be reading the email and see like, oh, number 32 is the link I want to click on, and then just jump to the end of the email, find the, U- the URL for number 32, and then, like you said, copy and paste it. Um, yeah. I don't know how the that URL view works with a ton of links, like if you give it a number or something like that, and it automatically opens it, but uh, the copy and paste thing is, has always worked fine for me. Huh. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a look at that because there's a couple ads that I get uh, that I do actually enjoy clicking on a few links in there and looking to see what they have to offer. So yeah. right now it's like a you know 180 character long link with tracking and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the other thing that's annoying with the sidebar patch is that uh, because Mutt will then wrap all of the lines within its own kind of pane because the mm-hmm. uh, sidebar has its own pane on the left. Uh, if you have a long URL like that, it will wrap to more than one line. And then if you try and copy and paste it, you'll end up copying whatever is in the sidebar as well. Oh yeah. So, um, like with the sidebar patch, I have shift, uh, capital B bound to quickly hide the sidebar list. So just whenever I go to like copy and paste a long URL or some other thing that's more than one line, um, I just do shift B that hides the sidebar. I can copy everything that's on the screen and then hit uh, shift B again and it shows the sidebar. Huh. I actually have run into that quite a bit with uh, Tmux. I'll have a couple pieces of code side by side and mm. I don't know, go to copy something and it'll span and yeah. grab the... I was watching a... Uh, somebody did a presentation at uh, BSDCAN and I was watching the... Oh, it was that um, PGP key signing party. Mm-hmm. Whoever was running that it had his screen up on the on the screen or on the YouTube video. Yeah. And I think I commented in the uh Metabug channel that he was like really fast with um doing everything from the command line as far as searching his uh command history and doing stuff in VI and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then at one point he was I'm assuming he was running the whole thing under Tmux because he quickly like jumped into Tmux's uh you know, it has a mode where you can scroll up within Tmux, and mm-hmm. then you can quickly select text and copy it, and then it break. You can break out of that mode. He like jumped into that and did it really fast. And I was thinking, like, you know, if you got good at doing that, it's probably a lot quicker than um, trying to like highlight text with a mouse. Yeah, actually, uh, that's NJT, um, and he um, or NJ. And he was, uh, I asked him about his Vim skills and he said, oh yeah, well I just did a talk on that and he sent me the slides from his talk and uh, it's it's really good. So if you have a chance, um, that's also a good a good read or a good watch if you want to get good at navigating Tmux and Vim and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I guess that's it for listener feedback and questions. Yeah, I think so. All right. Um, so I guess for our weekly Chromebook update, since we've been talking about this every week, yeah. Um, have you made any uh, inroads to the SDHC thing? I have, yeah. And where it is now, I'm basically backporting some of the changes that NetBSD made to the SDMMC driver. And um, as of, let's see, where am I at right now? It almost compiles... Um, I changed a couple of structs around and, um, right now I have to change a couple things in, uh, SDHC so that it will compile again. I'm getting some initialization from incompatible pointers. Um, but basically I added, um, a few things that I thought were useful, um, from the NetBSD version. Um, and I saw some other stuff on the mailing list. And I saw how NetBSD approached it versus how we approach it. And I've been trying to backport all that stuff. So just so you guys know what happened, um, Yuva is the guy's name. He actually wrote the initial driver, the SDMMC in OpenBSD for OpenBSD. 
and when he originally did it, he didn't um, he didn't want to fry any cards, so he left everything at the um, base voltages. He left everything uh, at low speed, <laughs> and uh, just a conservative, you know, stance on everything. It was the first port, and um, he got everything working. And then NetBSD took our driver. Um, and then they continued to work on it, and they added DMA. Um, they enabled a bunch of other features um, and fixed some bugs. And I've noticed some things, like even in defines that are wrong in our original header files. Um, and I was like, ah, maybe it's low-hanging fruit, and I'm just you know setting one thing wrong, or we're defining this thing wrong, and it's being set wrong. <clears throat> but there was... <clears throat> Excuse me, but there was no such luck, and I've been uh, just pulling over a few things at a time. Um, the error that we're getting when you enable debugging is that the um, OCR is unable to be um, read. So I've been kind of playing around with that and reading the code around how that how that happens, and that's actually where the NetBSD folks have taken a, a great deal of time to. Um, add some more features, I suppose. And, um, you know, there's quite a bit more code around there. So, of course, there's tentacles in every which direction. There's a bunch of header files that have new things defined, and then the data structures change, so other calling code needs to be updated, so you can't really just adopt one thing here or there. But, uh, yeah, the sdmmc underscore mem is the file that I've been working in, or the area that I've been working in, and it's... Um, you know, all this initialization stuff of the hardware. So hopefully, um, you know, maybe after the podcast tonight, I'll have a little bit more to report on that. Excellent. So did you actually like boot NetBSD and see if the uh, SSD or S- yeah, SSD works there? I did not. Uh-uh. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I just hate for you to do all that work and then find out that it doesn't actually fix anything. But well, I guess okay. We should have those fixes anyway, right? If we're yeah, doing we it the we wrong do. Way. Yeah, we do need to have the fixes anyway. Um, my stance was basically that. Um, well, here's what happened. I uh, started looking at NetBSD for um, some PCI devs. We were talking earlier about um, there's this Intel Series 100, um, and in our D message, we have a whole bunch of things that um, that aren't defined. And so I went to NetBSD and found all these device IDs in there and their definition, and I put them in PCI devs and regenerated it. And as I was there, I was um, looking through their SDMMC code, and, and I was like, oh, wow, they've made a lot of improvements to this. They've made a lot of changes to this. And I was kind of like rehashing all the, the stuff that I'd done in Calgary um, with SDMMC for the BeagleBone. And so I started reading their reading their code, and I was like, well, let me see what's going on with our SDMMC, and then I started doing a little printf debugging, and then I was looking at how they were doing things, and I was like, oh, wow, they're really, uh, I mean, they're doing this initialization stuff much different than we are. And um, so I started to read their code, and I was like, well, this is the same place we're having problems, so it couldn't hurt to, to try and adopt some of their changes, and I saw that they had done work on this uh in a similar area. So maybe it'll pay off. Maybe I should have just booted NetBSD and tried it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think they have a uh, frame buffer driver, so you probably wouldn't be able to see what was going on anyway. Ah, that's a bummer. All right. Um, cool. So hopefully there will be uh, something to report in the future. Yeah. Um, and on last week's show, you were asking about those... Uh, ACPI hid devices that show up, um, like Goog zero zero or Goog nine 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 and Goog, whatever. Yep. So I went and actually like looked at what those are. Uh, Goog nine 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 is a RAM oops driver, which was new to me, and I went and looked at what a RAM oops driver does, and it is a section of memory where you can write, where the kernel can write, uh when the kernel has an oops and in Linux they have an oops, which is kind of like a panic, but not as bad. So it's basically like when a driver crashes, it just generates an oops. 
but it doesn't actually like take down the kernel like it does in OpenBSD, mm -hmm. which I guess some people would say is good and other people would say is bad because um, you're kind of leaving things in a uh, unknown state. But anyway, so the RAM oops uh, driver, or I guess in ACPI, you would define this RAM oops uh, section of memory where this driver can write that information to that persists a reboot so that you can reboot the machine and see what happened to it last time. And I thought, wow, that's a whole lot of work for, to do something that OpenBSD has had forever, where it just writes the kernel messages to a ring buffer and it's in a you know known location at mm -hmm. each boot. And then when it boots the next time, it just finds whatever is still there and then appends to it. So you end yep. up like on AMD 64, you can usually fit like four or five entire D messages in that uh, buffer. And uh, when I was working on the frame buffer stuff a long time ago, I noted that uh, core boot initializes that memory when it reboots. So I couldn't find that old D message stuff when I was um, panicking before. Hmm. And I thought, well, they wouldn't need that RAM oops stuff if they just wouldn't initialize all of the memory in each reboot. And then it would work like every other BIOS uh, where OpenBSD works just fine to do that. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so then the uh, that's the GOOG 9999 device. There's a GOOG 0003 device, which is access to the EC, the uh, embedded controller. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we need that for anything, but if we do, it's there. And then there was a GOOG 0002 device, which is the keyboard backlight. I like the keyboard backlight. <laughs> so I uh, looked at how that works in the Linux driver, and it was uh, very simple. There's just one ACPI method that you read from that gives you the keyboard backlight value as a percentage of 100. And there's another one that you write to, and it is a value... Uh, in a percentage of zero to a hundred and that's all you need to do. So hmm. I just wrote a tiny driver and that hooked into that ACPI device. It hooks into WS cons. So now you can get adjustable keyboard backlight with WS cons CTL keyboard dot backlight equals whatever, something from zero to a hundred. And on the HP Chromebook, there appear to be 10 levels of backlight for the keyboard. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and so you sent me that driver earlier this week, which I really appreciated, and I kind of cheated a little bit. Um, I wrote a little script, and in, um, in my Spectrum config, I call that script. Um, I basically mapped F, uh, the F1 and F2 keys um, to keyboard backlight up and keyboard backlight down, and all I do is basically plus equals 10 for up and minus equals 10 for down and I cheated so I didn't go through it like the xmod map and all that kind of stuff but it works really well and I like it and uh, I can turn my keyboard backlight off and on as I desire uh yeah I did the same thing with rat poison um for that oh the other thing is uh did I mention it on the last show but uh we have working screen backlight control as well Mm -hmm. And that is um, because, oh yeah, so in the last episode I was uh, wondering why or whether the Intel backlight code that I had before would still work on the HP Chromebook because there's no VGA device, but there is mm -hmm. the PCI device for the actual VGA card that we don't do anything with yet because it's Skylake Video. So I dug out my old port that I made a long time ago for, um, I guess it was Broadwell at the time. Yep. Uh, back when we didn't have Intel DRM support for Broadwell. And it's basically a... Uh, somebody wrote this port for FreeBSD. They basically ported some code out of the Intel... Um, I'm going to look it up right now. Intel Video Tools, maybe? There's something... There's some like Xorg um, Git tree that is a... Uh, collection of like random tools that I think a lot of, oh, it's the Intel GPU tools uh, package. So it's something that Intel maintains and it's a bunch of like um, small scripts and like debugging stuff that I think a lot of the Intel employees and stuff use when they're um, 
maintaining the Linux DRM code for this stuff. And one of them, um, so it basically takes a lot, like some of the code from the kernel and duplicates it in user land so that you can manually like twiddle um, bits on the actual VGA device, like on right. the actual VGA card uh, without having to go through the kernel. And so one of those, um, so it has a lot of like knowledge about how each of the different generations of video cards work as far as like um, Broadwell, Skylake, uh, whatever the older ones are. And so somebody made a FreeBSD port of that a long time ago and basically just kind of took the code, the smallest amount of code required to adjust the backlight value. So I ported that to OpenBSD and made a uh, actual port out of it. And I think I submitted it to ports and no one ever gave me feedback on it. And so I just dropped it. But anyway, so I pulled out that code and updated it to work on Skylake, uh, mm-hmm. which is a newer generation than what was in there before, in the code before. So with all of that, um, you can now adjust backlight through this uh, script, which is kind of scary because it has to run as root and it has to access the aperture device and you have to set the uh, allow aperture to 3 which is a new setting that I had to add when I made this port initially a long time ago. And uh, I got the kernel part committed, but uh, apparently never the port. Anyway, so if you set it to three, that allows concurrent access to the aperture device. And since if you're running X, that would normally just hold open the uh, aperture device. And so with it set to three, this script can also open it and uh, talk to the PCI device and twiddle the bits and adjust the backlight. So, um, yeah, I set up the same thing with rat poison. So I have that bound to one, two, three, four, six and seven, six and seven to, uh, adjust the screen backlight. And that basically just calls the Intel backlight tool. And then, uh, I haven't done one for the keyboard backlight, but, um, I like, you know, how you can just set it through WS cons CTL. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, that's two drivers or I guess two, uh, things that are working now that weren't before that make it a bit easier to use this laptop while we wait for Intel DRM support. Um, because now you can actually use it at night since the screen isn't at a hundred percent backlight <laughs> and the keyboard backlight is not at full blast. Yeah. I noticed too, that, um, when you change the like when you turn the keyboard backlight off, it uses a ton less power. Oh, really? Um, I think it's like 250, 300 milliamps hmm. um, it uses when it's on full power. And then I noticed, too, really the the power from the battery um, drops pretty quickly when you uh, decrease the display brightness on the backlight. Oh, yeah. Um, the next thing I was kind of wondering about, and I don't know, like I'm, I'm ahead of the game here, I know, but... Uh, the contrast on here when the backlight's all the way up um, looks pretty washed out to me. And I'm wondering, like, um, when we get, like, a different driver, I suppose, we'll probably have control over setting uh, the the contrast and stuff and the color depth. Yes, because uh, X-Gamma will then work, and you can load in a uh, color profile. And I actually have a uh, color meter ideally um so i can actually mount that to the screen and do the actual uh analysis of the color to build an actual profile for it that's awesome um i'm trying to think of what it's called uh, the color hug i will uh, link to that on the show notes it's an open source uh, display color, colorometer, colorometer. Um, yeah. So it's like a little plastic device. You just mount it, uh, to the front of your screen. And then there's a, uh, utility that, uh, you know, flashes a whole bunch of colors on the screen. And then this device reads how it actually looks. And then it can give you a, uh, color profile, um, that you can then load in, uh, in any other operating system. And, and the, is the color profile like per backlight setting? Like, can it change with the backlight? 
Uh, I don't think it normally does. They say when you uh, when you run the utility to to take the profile, it uh, it says to just set the backlight to like how you normally use it in kind of an average setting. Um, so I don't think that most screens uh, should adjust it too much depending on the backlight. Um, but usually there is a big difference between how it's calibrated from the factory and how it looks when you load an actual uh, a proper ICC color profile. That's awesome. Yeah. And and how does it, uh, is it a USB device, you said? Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think there's like a Linux live CD that you can, uh, that I usually use with it that has uh, just like a minimal desktop environment and then it runs this open source utility. I never bothered to get it running under OpenBSD, but uh, yeah, it's all open source. The firmware for this thing is open source. Um yeah, so I guess if you care about this stuff and your display is not properly calibrated, uh, you can get one of these. Um, although if you run any other operating system on your machine, usually they come with a proper color profile, and it's in a, kind of a standard format, this ICC format. Um, so you can just like copy it out of Windows or Mac OS, and uh, you can load it on OpenBSD with... Uh, uh, I can't remember the utility. It's something you have to install from ports, I think. But okay. um, it'll load an ICC profile, and it's you know it makes a huge difference usually because it usually the the display is is a very cold color, and when you load the ICC profile, it it warms it up. Uh, one thing I did notice is the Samsung laptop that I got is um, I calibrated the display on it, and the ICC profile that it produced it was actually worse than the default factory setting. So like I never load a profile on OpenBSD and it looks perfect, but on every other machine that I've had, um, loading an ICC profile makes it look a lot nicer. Huh. So that's kind of weird. That is weird. Um, one thing I wondered is um, you were talking about the warmth of the colors. That also reduces the strain on your eyes quite a bit too. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if you ran. Um, I mean, I don't know if it does just by default, but if you ran the uh, one of those redshift kind of programs that shifts it towards the red at night. Huh. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So that's the, uh, I guess, the current status of the HP Chromebook 13 that you and I are working on. Yep. Oh, that was another thing. Someone asked us, uh, or someone said something on Twitter, maybe they were commenting on something and they asked, they said, would you recommend this Chromebook? And, um, I, I don't want to steer you towards or away from this Chromebook. <laughs> um, if you have money to spend on equipment, by all means, um, you can check it out. I'm going to try and make this my daily driver. Mm-hmm. I already miss things like the home and end keys and page up and page down. Um, but as far as, you know, screen resolution and usability, uh, it's pretty close right now. I don't have a, I mean, I'm still plugging in a mouse, um, which isn't like a deal breaker for me by any means. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as a daily driver, not everything is supported yet and it works pretty well. Um, it's a nice high resolution display for 800 and I think mine was like 900 bucks by the time I paid tax and shipped it here and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's less expensive than other machines with, um, QHD plus displays. And I think it works really well. I don't think it's really, um, a horrible laptop and I don't think it's like a fantastic laptop. I just think it really fits the bill. Um, yeah. So anyway, if you're looking at getting one, I'd, Maybe get your hands on one first and take a look at it. I, I don't know what you're going to use the laptop for. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to say, yeah, it's great. And then you get it and you're like, well, I put it in my lap one time and picked it up and it folded in half. You know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's pretty decent build quality. I would say if you're going to run OpenBSD on it to definitely wait until we at least have SDHC working and the trackpad mm-hmm. because you can't. Well, you can't do anything with suspend and resume right now because you have to boot off of a uh, micro SD card, which uh, will screw things up, and you have no trackpad. So, like, I can't find the 
dongle for my wireless USB mouse, so I can't plug it in. Uh, so I have no, tr- I have no trackpad in OpenBSD. Um, yeah. Which doesn't really bother me because I'm doing everything in terminals anyway. But I would at least wait for those things, and then so it's at least usable at that point. And then once the Intel DRM support comes in, it'll be a lot better. Yeah. Um, but the price is decent, like you said, and uh, once we get proper Intel DRM, you'll be able to actually use the full resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were looking at that last week. You were looking into Core Boot to see if you could try and um, bump the resolution so that um, our EFI FB would see the, the native resolution instead of distorting things. Did you make any progress with that? I have pretty much given up. I tried everything I could to... Uh, get the bus pirate to recognize the SPI chip and nothing works. Um, I don't know if it's because the chip is so low profile that the, um, clip that I have can't make a, um, like a secure connection to the pins, even though it looks like it is, or if it's just not like the other thing is if you take off the heatsink, which is like a really long plate, um, that covers up probably three quarters of the motherboard there's another Windbond SPI chip under there. So I was like, oh, well, maybe that's the actual, you know, where Coreboot is. But I couldn't read that one either. So I have no idea what's going on. But I felt like if I kept trying to um, jam this clip onto the chip that I was working on, that it was going to end up, like, breaking off one of the pins. And then uh, I'd be pretty much screwed. So yeah. I've just given up. And I looked through the Coreboot code again, I think, yesterday. And I can't even see where it's doing the uh, that video resolution initialization. So I think it's doing it inside the VGA ROM, um, like leaving it up to that to, mm-hmm. to set the uh, proper resolution, which in that case, like, it's just a binary blob, so there's no controlling it anyway. Yep. So I'm just going to leave it at 1920 by 1080 until we get proper Intel DRM for uh, for that. Fun times, yeah. I, I still keep, in the back of my head, I keep thinking, man, if we sent this to Mark, we would have all this stuff working in, you know, a few days. We'll get him some presents. Well, he thinks these Chromebooks are dumb anyway, so he probably wouldn't and want to work on it. He thinks they're dumb, and he went out and bought one, and then we had like 16 new supported devices in a few days. Wait, he bought a Chromebook? I'm I'm almost certain, yeah. He's been committing stuff uh, to ARM for some Chromebook that he bought. Uh, I thought that was just um, Qbox. Is that a thing? Oh, maybe it was. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that was just like a little uh, system on chip. I don't think it was an actual Chromebook. Um, yeah. And what's the fun in you know having Mark do everything? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I am. I'm. I'm having fun with this one actually, and um, it's it's good to go from like writing Go all day long and. Uh, you know, kind of getting in the getting out of the web application mindset and actually into some stuff here where, you know, you have to think about drivers and you have to think about uh, kernel code a little bit. I actually really enjoy this, and the few evenings that I've spent on it, I felt like I've uh, been making some progress. I'm hoping that I can get some uh, results here pretty soon. I, I'm actually, I was a little bit disappointed that we couldn't like do like a live hacking show for the podcast tonight because I'm itching to see what happens when I boot this next kernel. Yeah. Well, uh, record it anyway and we'll see what we can do. Um, <laughs> let's see what else. Yeah. What else is going on this week? Oh, I've had all this weird stuff happen for work. Um, I have had another instance of a dedicated server getting men in the middle uh, huh. and this time I, it wasn't malicious. Um, I will link to the, uh, post that I made on my website a long time ago about the first time that this happened where it was malicious. It wasn't targeted at me at my server though. It just happened to, it, uh, hit every server on the land cause they were men in the middling the router. And mm-hmm. in this case, uh, some other customer just bound my IP to his <laughs> machine. So it was like flapping tra- traffic between both of our ports. Right. So I had um, a dedicated server that has its own uh, primary IP address. And usually like the when they assign these to you, they give you like a slash 29 or a slash 30. 
of mm-hmm. IPs. And so they bind one to their switch or router, and then you get that IP. And so it was actually a secondary IP that came out of a pool of, I think it was like a slash 29. So there weren't that many IPs, but obviously there was an IP um, that was also going to another server. It started like my network monitor was having SSL um, connection failures to my server, but it wasn't like uh, SSL or like, it wasn't like port 443 stopped listening. It was that there was like an SSL negotiation error and it wasn't, you know, the typical like certificate is expired or the name is wrong or whatever. It was Mm. some weird like SSL, uh, you know, connection error. And I'm thinking like, great, what the hell just broke? So I'm trying to debug this on the server. There's nothing useful in the logs that says like, uh, you know, like Nginx reporting a failure with, um, you know, incoming SSL connections or something like that. It wasn't like running out of file hand or file descriptors. Um, I didn't, I hadn't upgraded anything lately. And so I was like really confused about why it was getting these SSL f- failures and it was intermittent. It wasn't like every single connection. And as far as I could tell from the traffic on the machine, like uh, it was still processing a bunch of traffic. So it was very strange. So finally on my network monitor, um, which runs OpenBSD, I ran a TCP dump to actually look at the connection that it was making to the server so I could look at it in Wireshark and see like what kind of negotiation failure it was having. And uh, when I looked at it in Wireshark, I realized that the error or like it would connect and then the SSL negotiation would fail, would fail. But then the data that was being sent back from my server was a plain text error page. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And luckily in the error page, there was a name of a, the host, like that the web server was configured as. And it mm-hmm. was saying like, you know, uh, host not recognized contact whoever at whatever host name, uh, for assistance. And I'm thinking, how is this even plain text, you know, over an SSL page and why is it showing somebody else's contact information for my IP address? So then I looked up the IP address of the host name that was in the error page and it was like two, uh, IP, like two numbers off of the IP address on my server. The, like the last octet of the IP was only like a few digits off. Mm-hmm. So then I put it together that this was another coll- or another dedicated hosting customer uh, that was on that same network that had probably bound my IP address to uh, their server. And so the switch kept flipping back and forth. Whoever did an ARP uh, advertisement last would get control of the IP and it was routing traffic to their server and for whatever reason, they were uh, they had their web server listening on port four four three for plain text HTTP traffic, which is very, <laughs> very weird. But it ended up you know being what I needed to diagnose this problem. Um, so yeah, that was very strange. And there were no you know like usually if you are on a LAN and uh, someone takes your IP, OpenBSD will log in the um, like it'll spit out a kernel message saying our info overwritten for whatever or something like that. So it's like really obvious when that happens, nothing got logged in this case. Um, and I think it was because that ARP broadcast from the other server was not coming back. The switch wasn't sending it back to my port. So I basically never, uh, knew that this was going on from the server itself. It was all external. So it was very bizarre. So I basically had to open a uh, support ticket with the hosting provider and say some idiot has taken my IP and you need to like shut them down or something. Um, and it took them like seven hours to finally do that, which is yeah. not acceptable. Nope. Uh, yeah, but such is life when you're, uh, you know, in someone else's network and you can't really do much about it. Um, so luckily I was able to kind of route around it and just stop using that IP. But, um, yeah, a very strange issue. That is strange. I heard, uh, something similar mentioned in uh EuroBSDCon that, um, as we run out of IPv4 addresses that 
it's already happened now that people just start stealing other people's addresses in <laughs> much the same fashion. Wow. <laughs> so. Huh. Yeah, so I have a uh, an article on my on my website from 2011 when this happened on another of my servers where I tried to go to, I tried to pull up the web page of something running on my own server in my browser and I was just getting a whole bunch of gibberish in the web browser and it turned out that because I was using gzip compression in the web server that whatever was doing this man in the middle attack on the network that was um, inserting like malware into all of the HTTP traffic um, going across the LAN. It didn't, obviously, whatever malware they had did not have support for gzip. So it was just writing their, like, HTML tag, uh, inserting that in plain text in the front of the gzip stream, except that my web server was still sending a, a uh, you know, a header that said that the data was gzipped. So the browser got all confused because obviously none of the data would uh, uncompress properly because mm-hmm. it had all this junk in it. So um, that was an interesting uh, a day when I had to contact that provider and say that someone is um, flooding your uh, network, broadcasting a uh, fake uh, ARP entry for the router so that it could basically man in the middle all of the outbound traffic um, coming from this hosting provider. I'll have to read that later on. It wasn't SourceForge, was it? No. Um, <laughs> but in this case, like in or in that case, I did get all those uh, ARP info messages in the uh, kernel log, so I could easily see that something was going on. Um, so that one was a lot easier to detect, but this one was very strange. Um, so I would uh, be interested to find out if there's a way to detect that in OpenBSD, and I don't really know how. Um I guess if it were like getting a whole bunch of packets uh, for connections that weren't opened, because like if someone opened a, a TCP connection to this rogue server, and then while they had the connection open, the ARP entry flipped on the switch back to my mm-hmm. server, the sending client would still be sending like ACK packets or right. you know new data to me. And then the kernel would be like, wait, I have no idea what connection you're talking about. And then yep. probably would send like resets back. So um, I guess if that like happened a whole bunch of times, it could detect that something odd was going on. But I guess this isn't that common of a problem. So yeah, that's my uh, story about getting man in the middle at a dedicated hosting provider. That is a terrible story. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it just goes to show you that you should use SSL everywhere because in this case, uh, the only thing that really set it off was that the SSL negotiation failed, and um, that way you're not sending, you know, sensitive traffic to a host that you don't really know is the uh, the actual server, although it's much more likely that you'd get man in the middle on the client side, like if you're using insecure Wi-Fi and someone is trying to man in the middle you there it's uh, kind of strange to have it man in the middle on the server end but then I was like you know I was going to like well if somebody wanted to take over my email address to I don't know hijack a domain or something they could just um, get a dedicated host on or with the same provider that my email server is at and then do this attack basically take over my IP and then start seeing all of the incoming email that was going to my domain. Yep. And because of the way that SSL encryption works over email, uh, you don't have a certificate for the domain that the email is going to. You have a certificate for the host name of the mail server. Right. Yep. So you can set the mail server to, you know, whatever domain you want. Um, and have a valid SSL certificate for that. And as long as the MX record for my domain is pointing at that host, uh, every other sending server would think that that was perfectly fine. Um, so I guess the only way to fix that would be, I don't know. I don't think you can fix that because you wouldn't need to change the DNS records, right? So like 
DNSSEC wouldn't come into play. Uh, yeah, that's pretty weird and bad. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a scary problem. I don't know too much about, um, well, I haven't done anything with email servers and, um, nor have I kept up on the DNSSEC stuff, so I don't have any idea. Um, and I was going to talk about debugging a Ruby memory leak, but it's kind of yeah. involved in, uh, we're kind of short on time. So I guess I'll talk about that next week. So yeah. that newcomer to web development, uh, you'll just have to wait for my tale of debugging Ruby uh, for another week. Yep, next week's show will have more good stuff in it then. I did have uh, one other small thing that I just wanted to talk about. Um, have you done anything with Arduinos? Yeah, I'll have a few things. Set up um, some LCDs and some weather stations and stuff like that. I wanted to set up something that would uh, be in the basement where my washer and dryer are. And when it, it would hook into the power outlets that those things are plugged into, and when it detects that they are sucking power, it would make a note that they are running. And then when they stop taking power, it would know that they're done. And then it could send me a pushover notification that says, hey, the dryer is done. Because <laughs> I can't hear the little buzzer on the thing from mm -hmm. the third or from you know, up in my office because they're down in the basement. Um, and I think there are like power sensors for the Arduino. So that part should be easy. Um, and I'm assuming that there's like Wi-Fi modules for those things. Yeah. They have a ton of uh, little wireless modules you can buy. I think they're very cheap too. And they even have ethernet if that's your thing. Um, yeah, you can tie it in. And, and in fact, I think they even have, um, GSM modules so you could like have it send you a text even <laughs> and you buy like a SIM and it's got like unlimited text for a year. And I think it's like 20 bucks or something like that. So, huh. yeah, so maybe I'll play around with that cause it seems cheaper than getting like a full, uh, raspberry Pi or something like that to run open BSD. But then you have to do like all the custom programming on it. Right in whatever yeah. language the Arduino uses. Yeah, and then you have to use the um, Arduino IDE, which is um, not going to do you any favors, but <laughs> it shouldn't be too hard. All right. Well, I guess I'll play with that and uh, do a sh future show about that. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention? Nope. Um, I Actually, just a comment on the shirts. The shirts look really good. Um, I was... Uh, I was uh, looking at the website and I was like, oh, that looks okay. You know, my impressions were like, <laughs> seems like good materials, seems like a good logo. The shirts kind of look like the, the pictures don't do them justice is really what it is. And when they came today, they actually fit really nice and are really nice material and good colors and stuff. So if you guys are looking at the website and you're like, yeah, I don't know, 29 bucks is kind of like for a t-shirt, they're really nice. Um, so um, let me allay your fears. Just go ahead and buy a bunch of them because they're cool. Nice. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this episode then. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM or through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, how can people reach you? I'm on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W, and you can also find me on Google+. I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS.com.